When London hosted the Olympics in 2012, the opening ceremony celebrated all things British. The Queen, the Beatles, and also the National Health Service. Please welcome Mike Oldfield and the staff of the United Kingdom National Health Service and our very special guest this evening, patients and staff of Great Ormond Street Hospital. Doctors and nurses danced around the stadium to music while pushing trampolines that looked like hospital beds. The British have always had a very emotive relationship with their healthcare system. It's, uh, some people describe it as a secular religion here. That's our colleague Max Colchester. And it's seen as one of the great successes of the British social model to have emerged from the 20th century. And for that reason, there's a deep, deep attachment to it. But right now, the NHS is in trouble. Patients are waiting longer than ever for treatment. And hospitals are turning people away. If you called an ambulance in December with a heart attack or a stroke, it would take an hour and a half on average for an ambulance to come to your home. An hour and a half? Yeah, on average, yeah. Are people dying as a result of this? Yeah, people are dying. And there are estimates saying that between 350 to 500 people a week were dying because of delays in the NHS. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Wednesday, February 8th. Coming up on the show, why the UK's free healthcare system is in crisis. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. The National Health Service was created in 1948. Was that controversial at the time? Because the idea of universal health care in the U.S. is so controversial. What did people think of it back then? I think it was widely welcomed. And it was seen as a revolutionary step. And it was seen as a, as a reward, really, to a British public that had suffered deeply during the Second World War. I think they realized, basically, the state can help people. It can provide welfare payments. It can provide pension payments. But ultimately, if it doesn't provide health care, that, that was the missing link, really. And so they, they went for it. The funding model for the NHS is simple. People pay for it through taxes and then receive care whenever they need it. As someone who has spent hours on the phone dealing with insurance companies and had surprisingly large medical bills in the U.S., are you really saying that in the U.K., citizens can just go to a doctor, get treatment, and not pay any money at all? Like, not a copay, like nothing? It's not free, obviously. It's, you pay for it out of your taxes. And obviously, that depends how much you earn. Uh, obviously, and that, that, that's the point, is that obviously if you earn more, you pay more. So it, it varies enormously. But broadly, yeah, if I were to break my leg right now, I could call an ambulance. Hopefully it would come and pick me up and it would take me to a hospital. I'd get put in a cast and given some pills. 
sent home and it wouldn't cost me a penny. For decades, the NHS enjoyed high approval ratings and was considered one of the best healthcare systems in the world. And each year, the government kept increasing its budget to keep ahead of inflation and support the country's aging population. Initially, in 1948, when this service was launched, the average male life expectancy in Britain was 66 years old. And the cost of running the service was, in today's money, £15 billion. Fast forward 75 years today, the average life expectancy of a man in the UK is now around 78 years of age. And the cost of delivering the NHS, the annual budget, is £150 billion. The UK spends less on healthcare than countries like Germany and France, and far less than the US. But in 2010, as costs swelled, the UK government wanted to put a lid on things. So the lead-up to that moment saw the financial crisis, and that blew a big hole in the government balance sheet in the UK. And in 2010, a Conservative government was elected, and it decided to embark voluntarily on a program of austerity. Austerity, meaning reducing government spending. And back then, the government wanted to cut billions of pounds. Here's the UK's then-Treasury Secretary announcing the cuts. Today is the day when Britain steps back from the brink, when we confront... when we confront the bills from a decade of debt. And that impacted the healthcare system because they didn't cut in absolute terms the amount of money going into the NHS, but they put a cap on it and they they looked to reduce it. So as a result, suddenly the taps were tightened on the NHS. How pivotal of a decision do you think that was, looking back now? I mean, if you talk to doctors and nurses and people who follow the NHS closely, they say it was pivotal. For example, nurses' wages have fallen in real terms by about 5% in the last decade. And a lot of the penny-pinching then has had a dramatic effect now. And also remember, it takes seven years to train a doctor. So decisions to cut budgets a decade ago are only now being felt as the doctors that maybe should have been trained haven't and therefore aren't arriving in hospitals today. But the government didn't just cap NHS budgets. It also tried to get different parts of the health service to compete with one another for funding. How do you make a state-run healthcare monopoly more efficient? You try and make it compete against itself. And that was the idea. And, and you set strict targets. You say you have to be treated within this amount of time or you have to see this many sick people. And, and that's the way to try and drive competition. And, and to a degree, it's worked. The changes made the NHS leaner, but managers said they were stretched thin and had less time to focus on things like recruiting and training new doctors. Salaries didn't keep pace with inflation. And then came the pandemic. The pandemic proved to be the straw that broke the camel's back in that sense, because suddenly, after the pandemic was finished, you had these enormous waiting lists of people who'd stayed away from hospitals or hadn't been able to receive care during the pandemic, who are now clamoring to get into the hospitals. You had an exhausted workforce. Uh, You had not enough beds to treat all these people. And the system stopped working as a result. Zahir Ahmed lives in Rotherham, England. Last year, he saw firsthand how bad those wait times can be when his five-year-old nephew Yusuf got sick. Tell me about Yusuf. Yeah, he was a... 
he was just a lovely, lovely child. Um, just liked his own time to himself on his iPads. He was watching a lot of uh, YouTube. So um, Yusuf used to, he, he picked up a kind of an American accent. <laughs> um, generally, Yusuf was, he was one of the kind of children that was very popular in the family. Yusuf's symptoms started with a sore throat and a fever, but then they got worse and he was struggling to breathe. So the family took him to the emergency department at Rotherham Hospital. After waiting for six hours, he was seen by a doctor. A uh, doctor came and he, he put a stick into Yusuf's mouth and said, well, he says, this is one of the worst tonsillitis that I've ever seen. What we'll do is we'll give him some more antibiotics and take him home. So we said, okay, then that's fine. Obviously, you know, you expect the doctors to make the right decision. So we've taken him home. But after they left, Zahir says Yusuf couldn't swallow the oral antibiotics and his condition worsened. So we called the hospital back and asked if Yusuf could return for more treatment. And at this stage, begging him, I said, look, please, 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 he's really struggling breathing. They said, look, we've got no beds available. We've got no doctors available. I can't just pull a bed out of the air. What happens when there are no hospital beds? That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by Canva. It's time to ditch your old presentation programs at work and try Canva presentations instead. It'll help you create stunning slides in no time. No design experience needed. Just start with one of the designer-made templates or generate something in seconds with AI. Then polish it up and get ready to wow your audience. It's that easy. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Tap the banner to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash journal. Terms and conditions apply. One of the reasons Zahir was struggling to get the care he needed for Yusuf is because a lot of beds in UK hospitals are being taken up by people who don't need emergency care. Here's our colleague Max Colchester again. One of the major problems the NHS has is actually not linked to the NHS at all. It's that the UK's system of care for people with disabilities or the elderly is, is not part of the NHS. It's funded separately. And one of the big problems the NHS has is that this elderly care system has effectively collapsed post-pandemic uh, because there's a huge staff shortage if, someone, if an elderly person falls and hurts themselves, they end up in hospital and they need care at home, but there's no one to care for them at home, so they stay in hospital. So hospital beds can be hard to come by. And when Zahir's family sought one for Yusuf, they were becoming increasingly desperate. We were stuck. Um, it was a difficult time, so then me and my sister both decided. We said, look, let's, we've got one option. Let's just ring 999. They called 999, the UK version of 911, and eventually an ambulance took Yusuf to another hospital, where Zahir says he was seen by a team of doctors. 
They told the family that the infection had spread to Yusuf's lungs. He now had pneumonia. So immediately they taken him to the high dependency unit, put him on a ventilator. Um, from there, he just deteriorated, deteriorated, and it was too late. The infection spread from his throat to his chest. He had organ failure. On Wednesday morning, he had three um, cardiac arrests, and um, unfortunately, on the fourth one, they couldn't they couldn't get him back. Um, so it, it, the organs, none of the organs were getting any any blood circulation or oxygen. So um, the Yusuf, Yusuf on Wednesday morning he, he died. I mean, how how were you feeling as as all this was playing out? It was, you know. It, it, it was kind of um, it. It was just that. It's, the thing was that we we were just asking them and we were begging them to do that treatment at that time. If they would have listened to us, um, and if they would have listened to the doctor and the system was working, they would have. You know, Yusuf would have been with us now. He wouldn't have died. The hospital apologized to the family. Its chief executive said in a statement, "Quote." We know that this will not relieve the family's loss and pain. However, we are commissioning a thorough and independently led investigation, end quote. Zahir says he hopes the investigation will mean something like this doesn't happen to another family. Yusuf passed away. Um, he passed away with pneumonia and tonsillitis. Now, in 2022, how can a child, a five-year-old, die with tonsillitis in this country? You know, the resources we've got, the stuff we've got, they've killed a child at five years old with tonsillitis. I mean, that is a very, 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 very common, 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 you know, infection. If people like Zahir and his nephew aren't able to get the care when they need it, are there any other options? What what can people do other than wait? People who can afford it can get private health care. But ultimately, the way the system's structured is that if there's an emergency and you need an ambulance, you can't call in a private ambulance, really. You have to get an NHS ambulance. So you're you're really at the mercy of the system in some ways. Uh, And so there aren't that many alternatives. After years of austerity measures, the UK government is now increasing the amount of money it gives to the NHS again. Last month, it announced funding to provide more ambulances, call handlers, and hospital beds to relieve the strain on the health system. But staff in the NHS say they need a lot more. This week, tens of thousands of nurses and ambulance workers went on strike over pay and working conditions. What do we want? Safe staffing! How do we get it? Strike! What do we want? Safe staffing! How do we get it? This isn't about greed, this is about survival, and this is about the protection of the NHS, which we treasure. The only way to draw people back in is to provide the funding, make the services better so that the stress is less. I can imagine some people, certainly in the US may say this, that looking what has happened at the NHS, it's evidence that a government-run healthcare system can't work. And I think people in the NHS would say that's not true. Uh, because it has worked very well for 75 years. And it's hit a blip now, but that doesn't mean that it can't be put back on its feet. And there are plans to do that. The government has already vastly increased funding in the last two, three years, 
uh, in the NHS to try and uh, remedy some of the lack of funding in previous years and has been quite active in recruiting more staff. So what a lot of people in the NHS say is that we probably will see things start to improve in the next year or two. But that's not to excuse the the dire performance of the service uh, in the last year or two, because I think that's been a real wake-up call, that you can't just let this thing slowly rot in the background, and that there are real-world consequences to having a health system that doesn't function properly. One of the consequences is that it's hurting the economy. Economists say that because the NHS can't treat people quickly enough, more people are staying sick longer, making them less productive or keeping them out of the workforce entirely. You mentioned earlier about how people in the UK have so much pride for the NHS. How are people feeling about the NHS now, given what's happening to it? I think what we're starting to see is an opinion poll showing that people are becoming increasingly fed up with the treatment they're being given and and the pride in the NHS has definitely dipped. But there are very few people who are calling for a total overhaul of the system or a privatisation of the system. So this is very much the view that this system can be fixed, which it probably can, to be honest. But And so there isn't a desire to get rid of the NHS in its, in its entirety at all there. That's all for today, Wednesday, February 8th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Additional reporting in this episode by David Luno. Special thanks to Kate Bullivant. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.